0: My name is Eric McCoy, and I am high, wall, clean. Hey, all of us, we grow up with struggles in life, whether they're abuse from parents, psychiatric problems such as depression, anxiety, or a sense of dysphoria that can lead to substance abuse for a lot of people, economic insecurities, racism, or an upbringing in a uh, violent or an unsafe community. You know, these can all impact a person and a view upon themselves, causing a low self-esteem or a feeling of being less than to others. You know, as I made a decision to open my life for the world to see in pain, failure, and misery are the stepping stones to success, my struggles stemmed from a strong desire for independence that led me into a counterculture world of hippies a depression that seemed to be solved, at least temporarily, with alcohol and drugs, and a very low self-esteem that spiraled me into a world that I had no confidence or little care for myself or others. My pursuit in fighting the stigma of substance abuse is going to be a long uphill battle, but with the real-life stories like my guest today, who is a courageous warrior and other guests that I've had from prior episodes and future episodes that I consider my brothers and sisters in arms. We will make an impact, and I am convinced of this. There is nothing, and I want everyone listening to understand that I am no better than anyone else. The only difference is that I may have a bit of knowledge that others haven't learned yet because of my life experience my guests will have bits of knowledge that I haven't learned yet because of their life experience. And as I've said before, I am a teacher and I am a student. This podcast is for all of those teachers, but will never be helpful to those that aren't students as well. My guest today, Dre, will be relatable to some as he grew up with parents who abused drugs. He lost someone close as a result of a lifestyle involved in the drug world and has dealt with issues that less than 1% of the population in the United States have at least identified with, which is basically the best estimate because many have not disclosed this. Misunderstood by most, including many who have gone through this, Dre, a man who was born a woman, constantly struggles with the ability to love himself, battles with depression and anxiety, and has been diagnosed with PTSD as a result of childhood trauma. Dre, I wanna thank you so much for coming on the show today and helping to fight the stigma. You know, as misinformation runs rampant about substance abuse, trauma, and transgenders, as we live in a society of ignorance, so, I'm very excited to have you on the show today because some of this hits home for me, in which we had talked about, as I also have a son who was born a female. And I had an opportunity to watch that transition. My son also grew up with a father addicted to drugs, also. That was me. And so, I want to welcome you and I want to thank you very much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you, man. I'm so excited. Thanks for having me.
0: You know, I want to start real quick and I was thinking a lot about this. So before the DSM five came about, which is the diagnostic and statistical mantle uh, manual of mental disorders, we had the DSM four, which identified a gender identity disorder. And the reason I bring this up was did growing up for you at all feel as though you were treated as having a psychiatric illness.
1: No, it, it wasn't necessarily because I hid it. Maybe if I would have been more open about it from an early age, it might have been. But because I was so scared to be who I was, I hid it until I was 21. So I could be treated like everybody else.
0: Okay. So you, you didn't actually open up about it. So there was no like taking you to a psychiatrist or taking you to a therapist to quote unquote overcome this
1: (laughs) no so I went to therapy for different reasons right I went to therapy because I had a screwed up childhood you know so they wanted to get that aspect checked out I mean I, I came out openly as a lesbian which is more socially acceptable you know so there was never really any therapy that I needed to have and like I said it wasn't until I turned 21 that I kind of like realized that like hey I have this opportunity to medically transition you know And I'm an adult and I can make that decision and it doesn't have to rely on, you know, my guardians or anything like that. So there was no like psychiatric issues for me in that sense.
0: So now you grew up with um, parents that abused drugs. Correct. Um, and, And what was that like for you?
1: You know, that's honestly one of the hardest questions to answer, because for me, it was normal. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't until like I started making friends and going into different environments that I was like, okay, wait, maybe my childhood is, you know, my life in general is a lot different than, you know, normal kids, I guess you could say. I mean, it was it was very chaotic, as you probably can understand, you know? It was very unstable in a sense where like my parents were heavily using drugs, mostly prescription pills, but there was also a time where they, were forging prescription scripts you know so there was like a law enforcement aspect that I was always afraid of and when I was a kid I didn't really realize that there was like an issue with my parents drug use until I was like five when I got taken away by the state and it got sent to Orangewood which is kind of like open foster care I guess you could say is the best way to describe it so it was it was normal for me until I grew up and I realized and like looking back now I'm like okay I can see how toxic it was you know what I mean
0: so with your parents uh, forging prescriptions, how did they get these prescriptions? Were they doctors?
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was really young, but from what I remember, my parents had a very uh, good scheme going on. So they would take us to the doctors with them, you know, because my my, my mom, I think, is slightly a hypochondriac, so she thinks she has a lot of health issues. <laughs> And uh, she would go to the doctor, you know, the doctor would see them and my dad would slip behind the counter because they went so frequently. So he kind of like would eyeball it and see where they hid the scripts and whatnot. And while the doctors or the nurses were away, he would quickly sneak in, take the prescription scripts and then go back to the room. And then when we got home, because my mom would usually, usually receive like a prescription medication from the doctor, she would then fill out the scripts and forge that signature, you know. So it's kind of like a dynamic duo situation going on where my dad would like do the dirty work. And I guess my mom would like do the handwriting situation.
0: You know, people tend to hate what they don't understand.
1: I agree. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And I wondered if you would actually be interested in sharing your thoughts and feelings as you were growing up, um, since a lot of people with, you know, with the lesbians or the homosexual, you know, the gay community and things like that, believe it's a choice and not something that you're born with. How do you respond to
1: that? Honestly, I would say that my lifestyle, particularly, if you live the life that I live on a day-to-day basis, you would realize that it's not a choice. You know, I subject myself to a lot of, you know, critique by people who sometimes I don't even know, you know, so I would say that I, I would never choose this for myself. I mean, my overall goal when I did medically transition was that I would find happiness within myself. You know what I mean? Like, I always knew that there was something off about me, if that makes sense, you know, but I I didn't realize what it was. So I was on a journey to like, kind of discover myself. Like I was always very masculine, you know, like I played football with the boys when I was eight years old, like tackle football, Pop Warner or whatever. You know, so I always kind of felt like out of place. And I mean, it sounds like ironic, but like, I didn't even know what transgender was, you know, like, I thought that was, I was a tomboy. But when I learned that, like, there is a a medical diagnosis to gender dysphoria and whatnot, you know, like, everything kind of clicked for me. So to answer your question, I would never choose this life. But I accept the life that I live. You know what I mean? I don't fight it.
0: Yeah, that's what they call a trend, uh, transgender congruence, which is basically the degree to which you feel genuine, you feel authentic, um, and comfortable within your external appearance and ultimately, you know, accept your genuine identity and, um, And, you know, when I was saying this stuff in the beginning, I I didn't really want to imply the fact of it being a psychiatric condition because obviously, you know, the DSM-5 changed that, you know, diagnosis to uh, gender dysphoria. So your parents now live in Florida. Correct. Correct. And what is the relationship like with them now? And I understand that they are clean and sober today.
1: They have. So my parents, when they were on drugs, you know, there wasn't. There was a relationship that I was trying to have that I couldn't have reciprocated because of their disease. You know what I mean? Like there was a level of parenthood, I guess you could say that I needed in my life that I couldn't get. So I kind of kept my distance to protect myself, you know, but now, I mean, my parents have been sober for four years, you know? So my relationship with them, I, I was concerned when I came out as transgender, you know, that they weren't going to accept it, you know, because my mom always said, like, being a lesbian is one thing, but picturing her daughter with facial hair one day kind of, like, tripped her out a little bit, you know, so I had a concern that, like, it would ruin our relationship, but it's actually blossomed. like, I have a great relationship with my parents, I talk to them on a daily basis, you know, like, we're very open with each other, and they've kind of, like, I realize now that they were sick, you know what I mean, like, I, I had my brother, I don't know, like, you mentioned, like, I had my brother who was a drug addict, so I kind of, understood it in a different level when he became addicted to drugs, you know, that it wasn't a choice. So I I respect our relationship now. It's what I wanted back when I was a kid, but I couldn't get, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. And I think you have going to your brother for a second, you know, I think you have a great story in terms of the, the dangers of the world in, in drugs. Mm -hmm. What happened? What happened to your brother?
1: So there's only so much that I can say because it still is an open case, but my brother, he got a football injury. Like most people, he went to a doctor, got prescribed a bunch of painkillers. He ended up getting addicted to those painkillers in high school. And from there, you know, like he's, he went from, I think, Vicodin to like Xanax to taking like six Xanax at a time and blacking out. And I think it got to a point where it wasn't enough for him, you know, like he wanted to get a different high. And I went to Europe for two months after, or not two months, for two weeks after I graduated high school. And when I came back, when I left, he was addicted to Xanax. When I came back, he was smoking heroin. So I don't know what happened in that two-week time span, but I, it was kind of like, it was a shock, you know, because I was like, you know, we smoke weed every day. Like, that's one thing. Taking Xanax is one thing. But now, like, doing heroin, like, that's a whole bigger scare, you know? Because, like, I mean, you can overdose on Xanax, but the fear of, like, there's the word heroin it's frightening to most people. You know what I mean? So he he eventually progressed and progressed. He sold, you know, drugs, heroin, Xanax, everything he could. Like that became his lifestyle. You know what I mean? That was his means of surviving. And it kind of got him caught up in a situation from what I understand where he, you know, accused the wrong person of stealing drugs from him. Mind you, he was clean. From my understanding, he was clean, but he had accused a, a person of, taking his annex and that person ended up stabbing him. And my brother ultimately died from that wound. And like I said, I mean, it's an open case, but I equate the lifestyle of drugs to my brother's murder. You know, like if he wasn't there looking for drugs specifically or accusing somebody of taking those drugs, I feel like this wouldn't have happened.
0: Yeah. This is what we see today as being a very prominent factor in people turning to heroin. You know, they do get prescribed. I mean, I've been working in the substance abuse industry since 2003 uh, for most of the entire time. And a good majority, especially the younger people that we see in treatment today, they do. They start with, you know, uh, prescription medications. They get an injury. They go to the doctor. They do that for a while. And once they get addicted, it's not enough. They need to do more. They need something bigger and they need something more powerful. And did you have, did your brother, was your brother seeing a doctor that was probably quote unquote legit, or do you think he was seeing a doctor that was easily over-prescribing him medications?
1: When he first got the injury, it was legit. Like he tore his ACL. So he obviously had a surgery and had pain from that surgery. But then once it progressed to like taking Xanax on a daily basis, there was a doctor that he can just go to, you know, say whatever he had to say. And they would just write him a script like 60 Xanax, you know. And that doctor, I think, was aware of my brother's addiction, which actually pisses me off because it got to the point where like family members would have to call the doctor and be like, hey, you know, don't give Austin any more scripts, which I think you shouldn't have to do for a doctor. You know what I mean? Like that's their job is to cut people off or give it to people who need it. And it got to a point where this doctor was just giving it and giving it and giving it on like a weekly basis, like 60s annex on a weekly basis. You know what I mean? Not the only people who I hear that from. That's the scary part is like, it's so many doctors who are willing to do that to patients and they're not held responsible. You know what I mean? Like my brother had a choice to continue to take the drugs, but I think at a point, you know, the responsibility also should kind of fall on the doctors providing that instead of sending them the treatment. They kind of were enablers in a sense.
0: Yeah. I had, you know, Jody Barber and
1: yeah, of course
0: I had, um, actually have a a video of this where I had set an appointment with the doctor that her son had seen Mm -hmm. that was originally, um, had gotten hooked on all these different medications that he was prescribing. Mm -hmm. And I had set an appointment up and met with him and, Within my second, maybe my third visit, I had four different types of medications. One of them, I had three separate prescriptions, three prescriptions of Adderall written in one day. 50 milligram tablets, and meth was my drug of choice. And I did this to see how easy it was to Mm -hmm. get medications from this specific doctor. Now, I know that what he's doing is just one example of thousands of doctors out there that are doing this and Mm -hmm. so i do actually have a video of that on my youtube channel um where i do like kind of an intro i go in i meet with him i come out and i talk about what the meeting was like um he had actually chopped up pills and put them in a bindle and (laughs) handed it to me (laughs) it was it was like a doctor
1: you know like it's it's crazy like a doctor who's supposed to take care of you is doing that yeah that's the that's the insane part to me
0: if you go onto the American Medical Board's website, you can actually find all kinds of doctors that have actually been convicted of felonies that still are able to practice medicine. There's a lot of them that are on probation that have been on probation numerous times, and they're still able to practice medicine. That doctor that that uh, Jared, jo- Jody's son, had gone to see had been on probation um, three or four different times. And he's still able to practice medicine.
1: And you would think that they would revoke the license, you know,
0: (laughs) I don't really understand that in the state of California where that, you know, what, what, what is it that they have to do to lose their license? You know, that's,
1: I would, I would say a death should be, you know, multiple deaths I heard, especially, especially from Jody's case, it's multiple deaths from that one doctor.
0: Well, there was one doctor in Los Angeles, a lady, who had been prescribing Opana to a bunch of Jared's friends, from my understanding. And she actually later had been convicted. She's serving a life term in prison.
1: I went to high school with three kids who knew Jared, who are siblings of friends of Jared, who all passed away, who I grew up with. You know what I mean? Like three people affected at least in one high school whose siblings died from that doctor.
0: Yeah. So you grew up in Orange County, then.
1: Yeah, exactly. I went to school with uh, Jody's other kid, Bart, uh, Blake. Okay. So I, I'm I'm very fond of the family. Actually, Jody actually kind of helped my brother get into a few treatment programs when he was going through his addiction. So I have a lot of respect for Jody. Yeah.
0: She's an amazing lady. Yes. She is. Uh, she's done a lot for me. I've had her on my podcast. Um, she's one of those people that. You know, I'll, I'll ask her if she would, you know, do a presentation for clients or for uh, the students at the school that I teach for. And she's always there. She's ready. She's willing to do whatever, you know, to help. She's an amazing lady.
1: Yeah, I, loved, I love her.
0: <laughs> yeah. Now, you had mentioned that you had a lot of abuse as a child. What was, what was some of the things that you had, had to go through as a child?
1: So when I say abuse, a lot of people assume that I was like. Physically abused, you know what I mean? But a lot of my abuse came from like mental and psychological abuse, you know? Which is like, like, just as bad. Yeah. If not, sometimes I think it's worse. Like those scars of getting beat will go away, you know? But like the mental things that I kind of endured or seen growing up kind of, I've realized now they stuck with me, which is why my doctor diagnosed me with PTSD. Like there were a lot of things in my childhood. Like, for example, the first memory I have of a kid. As a kid was my dad taking a needle to his arm and drawing blood because he used to be an EMT, you know. So he had a lot of those needles when he was doing his drugs and like shooting a syringe, sticking in his arm, put the blood out and then squirt into the sink. And he wanted us for some reason to see that. And I don't remember what his logic was for it, but he, he wanted us to see how to extract blood from your body, you know, like that's something that I didn't realize would like affect me a lot. But like, it's like little things like that, you know, like having somebody overdose in my house when I was a kid and like my dad trying to save them or one of my dad's friends shooting my dog up with heroin and then shooting him up with meth because my dog died, you know, like trying to bring him back, like just weird things that I don't think anybody should ever witness.
0: Yeah, emotional abuse can be very, very traumatic. You should ask your dad now that he's clean and sober. What was the point?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm genuinely curious. I'm like, I I don't understand, you know, and maybe that's why I have a fear of needles now, you know, but like, yeah, it it just makes me like genuinely like want to throw up when I think about it. Cause it's nothing that I would, if I ever had children, it's something that I would never want to do. You know, I just don't understand the rationale of it.
0: And you had brought up in, the, uh, email I think that you had sent about low self-esteem and working Mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Where are you at with that?
1: I would say if you would have asked me three months ago, I would say that I was probably at a point in my life where I was probably the most depressed I had ever been. You know, like I, I have the financial stability, you know, I have a beautiful wife. I got a home that's mine, everything that I have in my life, I've given to myself, but there was, it, it was just like, I wasn't happy, you know, like I, I, like I mentioned to you, like I've smoked weed for like the last 10 years of my life. And when I first started smoking weed, it wasn't to like numb myself, you know, like a lot of people, I think, think weed is very underrated, you know, like it's not a drug because it's legal, but it got to a point where I was like smoking so much weed to where I would numb myself and like get so high where I just would be somewhere else out of my body. And that's why I sought therapy, you know, I was like, I I can't keep living like this. Like I was having panic attacks every day, multiple times a day. Like it wasn't a way that I wanted to live my life. And I, like I said, I sought therapy and I've learned a lot of the issues that I was struggling with were from my childhood, you know, things that I didn't think were going to affect me coming back up and like everyday life affecting me. So now since I've been in therapy for like three months, I would say I'm a lot happier. I'm not where I want to be, you know, but like I stopped smoking weed because I realized that was like a trigger for me, you know, like the fear of becoming an addict was something that I've been running from my whole life because it's like, I feel like it's built in my DNA. You know what I mean? And I, I'm just like, I'm at a place where I'm content, but I'm not completely there, you know?
0: Yeah. I want to make two points here. that I want to say real quick. And that is for all the listeners out there that think that marijuana is non-addictive. You need to rethink that because yeah. <laughs> marijuana is a drug. It alters our, you know, a drug is anything that, that um, alters our central nervous system. Marijuana does that and marijuana creates withdrawal symptoms. And when you smoke marijuana for an extended period of time, your body changes, your body adapts, just like any other drug out there It creates a new norm and your body stops functioning the way that it should unless you provide that substance and that's kind of what we call dependency because your body becomes dependent and creates what they call allostasis which is a new norm and marijuana does that just like methamphetamine heroin alcohol all of those things withdrawal is different and i always love to ask people that are like oh no it's not a problem i can do it And i'll, I'll look at them and i'll go all right well i want you to stop for two weeks Just stop. Yeah. And, you know, they're like, no, no, I got it. No big deal. I can handle it. It's not a problem. Why do I need to stop for two weeks? Just try it. Just stop for two weeks and see if you can do it and how you feel and how comfortable it is. Do you feel like shit when you're not smoking it? Do you get irritated? Do you get frustrated? Do you get, you know, and so there's all these withdrawal symptoms that do come along with it. And a lot of it's irritability. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the, difficulty sleeping. You know, you'll to, uh,
1: That was a big one for me. I was up for days. <laughs> yeah, so I would smoke to like to the point where I'd like eventually pass out and then when I stopped I was like I can't sleep. You know, I'd sleep like 3 hours and I'd be like, oh, It was like it's even now I still don't feel like normal. You know what I mean? And it's been 3 months.
0: And that means there's an addictive quality to it because your body has changed. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing I wanted to say to you is When we look at happiness and we look at, you know, and I, and I put this together years ago and I, I had done a, you know, in the treatment industry, we talk about, you know, everybody always says, I just want to be happy in life. That's what I'm looking for. What do you, what are you looking for in life? And they're like, I just want to be happy. I just want to feel good. And treatment programs and counselors for years had always just said, cool, that's great. Let's move towards that. I hope you find it but nobody ever teaches it. (laughs) (laughs) it is about where are you going to actually find it? Because most people out there look for it in the wrong places. They look Mm -hmm. for it in money. They look for it in a person. They look for it in a job. They look for it in, you know, everything that's outside of themselves. That's not where happiness is. Happiness does not come from anywhere other than from within us. One of the things that I learned through my life experience was I can look back on my past and I did a lot of really bad things. I did a lot of horrible things, you know, Um, and I reached a place when I started really working on self-esteem and looking at it. I started realizing that all of those experiences in my life have helped shape me. But they don't make me who I am. There's nothing that I've ever done that actually makes me who I am. So I'm not my actions. I'm the one that has done those. But I realized that all of the experiences, the good things, the bad things, you know, the the um, you know what you could define as horrible things, maybe that you had to experience, have helped shape you. And I got to a place to where I realized that okay, this stuff helps shape me. And as I worked on my self-esteem, I love who I am today. I love who I am today. And so that's what we call transforming our past. You know, so we can take all of the horrible, painful experiences and we can reframe them into something that becomes helpful, useful, lessons that you may have learned. You know, the abuse, uh, emotional abuse and things that you have dealt with in your life can be great lessons for you. Mm -hmm. You know, you're a survivor. You know, you had, and and the survivor concept brings a lot of amazing qualities with it. Mm -hmm. Courage, you know, I mean, you're able to stand tall, your head held high. You're able to come on here on this podcast and share your story. That's courageous. That's courage. That's You know, um, I'm assuming in the sense that, you know, I want to share my story because I'm sure that other people can possibly relate to what you are going through, have gone through. There's a lot of people out there that, you know, as I had mentioned, statistical information, it's a very small percentage, but I guarantee the number's bigger than that.
1: Oh, I'm sure now. Yeah.
0: And just like you had mentioned, I mean, you grew up and, you sh- you hid it from from everybody. You know you weren't yourself. You pretended to be something maybe that you were not, and that's a horrible way to grow up. Yeah. You know, to, <laughs> to try and be somebody that you aren't. And I learned I learned in my life that even as a counselor, and I've said this before, I think on a podcast was when I started counseling, I have this image in my head of what a counselor was supposed to be like. I'd stand up and I'd, you know, talk in a certain way. And I was this, but I wasn't me. Mm-hmm. And You're decided,
1: playing
0: a part. <laughs> yeah. I decided one day that, you know what? Like, fuck it. I'm just going to be myself. <laughs> you know, and yeah. I, you know what? Life got so much easier. Mm-hmm. And it was like, man, counseling became, you know, a secondhand nature in a sense. So it wasn't, you know, fighting this concept of like, I'm just going to be me. I'm going to be me. This is me. Love me or hate me. But this is what, Uh,
1: yeah, I am what I am, you know? Absolutely. And that's funny you mentioned survivor because for the longest time up until recently, I looked at myself as a victim. You know what I mean? So I allowed myself to be a victim of circumstances that were out of my control. And I let that dictate a lot of choices I made in life, you know, a lot of people that I felt like I had to please. And it it caused a lot of depression and anxiety. And it wasn't until I started looking at it like maybe a year ago that I, I realized that there's nothing in my past that I would change, you know, even the loss of my brother, it taught me a lesson, you know what I mean? It taught me to appreciate time, you know, before he passed away, I did everything I could to help him, you know? And one of the last things he said to me was that he appreciated me always having his back, you know? And if I would have done anything different in my life, maybe that wouldn't have been the case, you know, maybe I wouldn't have been there, been able to be there for him. Or, you know, like if I never transitioned and I just lived as a woman to please everybody, like maybe I wouldn't be here. You know what I mean? Like I I realized that I needed to do stuff for me because at the end of the day, I'm the one who has to deal with it, not everybody else. And it was very freeing, you know, realizing that like, like you said, like, this is me. I'm not going to play a part. You know, I am who I am. And if you don't like it, well, fuck off. You know, like, I don't need you around. And I got by doing that a lot of toxic people or toxic energy out of my life. And I think that's contributed a lot to like the the freedom I feel, you know, like the happiness journey that I'm on. Because I don't think happiness is like, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, yeah, I made it. I'm happy. You know what I mean? It's kind of like a journey. Like, you're on a journey to find happiness. It just doesn't, it just doesn't appear.
0: You can't wake up in the morning and say, I'm just gonna be happy today.
1: Yeah, because nine times out of ten, something's gonna go fucked up, you know, and you're gonna be like, Oh, well, I'm not happy today, maybe tomorrow. You know,
0: one of the greatest steps that you can look at is appreciation, you know, appreciation, Mm -hmm. the strongest outbound form of love, the idea of giving of everything and asking for nothing. Mm -hmm. When you're when you look at appreciation and you look at everything that you have, you look at you know, I have you have a house. You've got mm-hmm. a wife. You've probably got a car. Yep. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things that you have, and when I start looking at that, that makes me feel good. Mm-hmm. You well, know, instead of so many people out there like to say, I, you know, I wish I had this. I could have had that. You know, and all the woulda, coulda, shouldas in life. But that's not real. That's not reality. We live in the real world, and so I appreciate those things that I have.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think you can make anything happen. I mean, if you put there's nothing in life that can really stop you, you know, like, I, like, like, if you're addicted to drugs, and you want to be sober, like there are steps that you can take, it's not going to be easy, you know, but there are ways to get to where you want to go. You know what I mean? And sometimes you gotta, it takes a while. Sometimes you learn the hard way. But eventually, if you just keep working at it, you'll get there. You know what I mean? And I learned that, you know, I'm Like I said, I have everything that I could ever want. I could care less about being rich. I could care less about any of that, you know, at the end of the day, everything in this home I bought and I couldn't be more happy about it. That's all I've ever wanted, you know?
0: And it's about getting to that place to, yeah, where you can love yourself and you can take care of yourself and you can care for yourself. And that's what everybody needs to look at is first, you know, first priority is us. You know, my first, first priority is me. I got to make sure that I'm good. Then I can go out and help other people. But I got to be good myself.
1: It's like on an airplane; you got to put your oxygen mask on, and then put others. You know, otherwise, you're not going to make it, and there's no point.
0: <laughs> yeah, your brother can be another lesson for people. You know, mm-hmm. Your brother doesn't have to die in vain if mm-hmm. there's something that can be useful by what ultimately had happened. Because obviously, we can't change it.
1: Yeah. And it took me a long time to realize that, you know, like I spent two years, he passed away in 2018, you know, so it's only been two and a half years. I spent two of those years hiding from the world, you know, like I locked myself in my house, I wouldn't leave, you know, I'd only go to work, I'd come home, I wasn't, you know, living. And, you know, six months ago, ironically, when all this pandemic stuff happened, I was like, you know, screw all this, you know, I got to get out there, I'm wasting time, you know, there's so many people who have passed away. didn't want to, you know, I don't think anybody does, you know, but there are so many people who could be, who would literally kill to wake up every day and be able to just go to work or, you know, stay at home all day. So I, I, I changed my mentality about it and that changed everything for me.
0: And so you were close with your brother then.
1: Yeah, we were, were, we were 18 months apart. So like he got held back in sixth grade. So from sixth grade to senior year of high school, we were in the same grade, you know, shared a room. We literally like did everything together, all the good, all the bad, you know? So we were close and it wasn't until I kind of had to emotionally separate myself when he was heavily in his addiction. And I realized I've done everything I could that like, we kind of put a distance between us, but there was always that like unspoken unconditional love. Like if you really need something, like I will drop everything and go there and help you, you know? But I had to emotionally separate for my sake, you know what I mean?
0: Do you think there's anything wrong with you?:
1: In some ways, I... Uh, no, actually no. I don't. I think everything that I think is wrong with me is fictional in my mind, things that I've made up for myself, you know, in my head. Like I could name a list of things that I think are wrong with me, but in reality, I mean, it's not true. I'm just a human being living life. you know I don't think there's really anything wrong with anybody at the end of the day. If it's who you are, then it is what it is.
0: Absolutely. You know, and I, according to my belief and studying myself and also the years of working in the, with the people that I've worked with, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. I tell clients this that I work with, there is nothing wrong with you because ultimately what people define as wrong are labels. Mm -hmm. Labels are what destroy and they limit us, you know, and they limit us
1: all the time. (laughs)
0: And, you know, you are you, I am me and love is an action Mm -hmm. that I think is seen through our behaviors. You know, I can't say that I love myself without proving it through actions of love Mm
1: -hmm.
0: because I can say anything I want. And, you know, if I'm not, if I'm saying I love myself, but I'm not respecting myself, then I'm not truly loving myself.
1: When the way I see it, like, this is the body that I have to live with until the day that I die. You know what I mean? So why fight the inevitable, which is just taking care of myself, you know, loving myself. I can't, I can't change who I am. You know, I can change certain parts of me, but at the, like, at my core, I can't change who I am. I can't change what I've been through. I can't change what's going to happen to me. So I just choose to look at it as like, if I practice, you know, self-care today, then it's going to benefit me tomorrow. So I always try to do things today that are going to, you know, help me in the future, even like the littlest things like wearing sunblock. You know what I mean? Like I wear that religiously because I don't want skin cancer in 20 years and my 20 years, 20 years from now self will appreciate it. So I take little steps, even if I can't see the bigger picture, I try to just do little things so I can remember like, hey, love yourself now. You'll appreciate it later type of thing.
0: Now, you did get into drugs for a bit. I know you had mentioned marijuana, but you also had <laughs> yeah. your experiences of, as you were saying, you were doing ecstasy and
1: yeah. In high school, uh, I, I started smoking weed freshman year of high school. Cause you know, I found my brother's weed one day and I was like, well, what the hell? My parents do drugs and my brother smokes, you know, the one person in this world that I look up to, like, why can't I, you know? So I smoked weed for the first time and I, I got giggly. I laughed, you know, a bunch, and I I was always trying to chase. There's not any high like the very first time you smoke weed, and I'm sure most people have smoked weed know that the first time, it's like you have the giggles, you want to eat everything, and then after that, you know, you always continuously try to find something else. So I steadily smoked weed, and two weeks after the first time I tried weed, I went to Disney Disneyland with some friends, and they had ecstasy, so I took ecstasy, you know, and I was like well, cool. Now I'm one of the cool kids. You know what I mean? And then, you know, I I didn't really dabble in it much until after I graduated high school. I mean, there was a time where I took mushrooms and I honestly had the worst trip of my life. And I was like, that is mentally, that is not something that I can ever do again. You know, like it changed my whole outlook on everything. And it was just a nightmare. And then after high school, you know, I, I I think I started realizing more like I wasn't comfortable in my body. And like there were opportunities for me to like go on party buses with a group of friends who all took ecstasy. And I did that probably solid for like a month straight doing it every single day, you know? And uh, the come down of doing all of that was honestly like one of the worst depressions I've ever had in my life, you know? So I would take Xanax to try to make myself feel better because I was so low. I was like, I just, I need something. And then I started taking Xanax a little bit and then I, I never really, I would say, got addicted to any of that stuff, you know, because I was able to stop because I saw ultimately where it would lead, you know, by looking at my parents. So that was kind of something that, like, feared that I kind of scared myself out of becoming an addict in a way, minus marijuana, which I'll I'll say I am a marijuana addict, you know, like I like to be high. But I kind of feared myself out of, like, the dark path.
0: Do you think your parents had any impact on that? The drugs? On your decision to not go down the insanity of addiction?
1: Oh, yeah. My parents, my entire life, all until four years ago, you know, I'm 25. So when I was 21, I've only ever seen my parents high. Maybe sober for like a week or two or like in and out of rehab for like a month, you know? But I only ever saw them high. So I was like... You know, they they can barely afford bills. They're renting a room from a family of like six, you know, I, I looked and I was like, that's no way that I want to be, you know, my parents are in their mid forties now and they just finally got on their feet. You know, they finally are, have a company and a stable job and they're finally making money and have a house out in Florida. And it's kind of bizarre for me to see all that. Cause I'm like, I had that before they did, you know, it's a little, it's a little backwards in my mind. It's hard to wrap my head around it sometimes.
0: Well, that's where your parents helped you out tremendously.
1: Yeah, I thank them, honestly. Like my mom, like I said, they've apologized for all that they've done. And I've accepted that apology. And I told her if they wouldn't have done that, I wouldn't have gone to the good school that I went to. And I wouldn't have gotten a college degree. And I maybe wouldn't have met my wife. And I wouldn't want all these things that I have, you know. So like you kind of said, to tie it all back, you know, I I look at it as appreciation. Like I didn't understand it then. But I understand it now. And if it were me, maybe I would have done the same thing, you know, because they were sick. I can't put them. I can't hold them guilty for that.
0: Yeah. Once you continue with the blame, as you had kind of brought up before, that you're you were all about blame. You had all your alibis. It's not my fault. You'll never grow in that process. You mm-hmm. know, um, Responsibility is the cornerstone of freedom in a lot of ways. So if you want to take control over your life, that's where self-responsibility comes into play. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of years in that blame thing. <laughs> and once I realized, you know, for myself, that that um I'm the one that makes choices. Choice is the father of freedom. And so once mm-hmm. I can remove all the alibis, all the blaming, that's when I'm going to find freedom in life. Nobody can, nobody has the ability to control me today. Nobody has the ability to impact my feelings. No, you know, I have, I can, you know, personal power is, you know, the, the ability to, I can think for myself, I can hold my own beliefs, my own values, my own morals, my old standards and not allowing other people to influence that.
1: Yeah. I, I, I blamed my parents for a lot of the shit that, I did and that my brothers did for a long time, you know, and I realized that it's, it leads to nowhere. Like you said, it's kind of like just a dark hole where you just will continuously find reasons to blame other people when you can just sit back and be like, maybe it wasn't my fault, but try to see the other side. You know what I mean? And when I did that, I mean, I, I, I forgive them. I won't forget what happened. But like I keep saying, it's made me who I am, so I appreciate it to an extent. It's very freeing, honestly. I love it. <laughs> Just being my own person, it's great.
0: Yeah. How long have you been married now?
1: I've been with my wife for six years, married for three. So she saw me before the hormones and then stayed with me still. So like I'm baffled. I'm I'm surprised every day. I'm like, wow.
0: So that's a question I was going to ask that's actually an interesting question. So do you, how do you identify yourself as a you as a heterosexual male?
1: You know, <laughs> we've had a debate. When I talk to people who didn't know me as a woman, I will identify myself as straight so I don't have to explain myself, you know? Because that's one of the things that I hate doing the most is having to try to explain to somebody my situation. But for people who knew me previously, like my family and stuff, like I just tell them, you know, I'm, I'm gay. Because I mean, at the end of the day, I personally choose not to deny my biology. You know, I know that I am a woman who's living life as a man and it's a glorious thing that I have the ability to do that. But I still don't forget about that part of me. You know, a lot, of, I feel like a lot of people choose to, you know, kind of wipe away that past. But I think that past is kind of, made me who I am. <laughs> so I identify myself as to you. I would say, if I didn't know you until now, I would say that I'm a straight male, mm-hmm. I guess would be the best way to put it just so I don't have to get a bunch of questions.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like me asking you, <laughs> <Just
1: kidding. laughs> but yeah, see, I don't mind. See, cause a lot of people, it's very, I, I forget that it's taboo for a lot of people cause I live it every day. So it's not weird for me, but I realize a lot of people don't understand Which I'm more than happy to explain
0: it. And that's where the problems lie for a lot of people, you know, is is that lack of understanding. You know, as I'd kind of said, you know, it's like we see in our society today, hate, so much hate comes from individuals not understanding. It's not normal to me. So it's wrong. It's evil. You're horrible. Um, You know, of course, then you can delve into the religion side of things. Um, which brings a whole nother, you know, dimension to it, (laughs) but, um, but that is, and that's, that's why, you know, this was really kind of exciting to have you on here because, you know, for me again, fighting the stigma of things is fighting the misinformation, you know, the, the lack of knowledge that people have, which ultimately brings a lot of hatred for people. This doesn't necessarily mean they're ever going to really understand it, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know,
1: I don't understand it. I don't understand it either. You know, I think a lot of people are very quick to like, again, I choose not to play a victim. So if somebody wants to call me a woman, you know, I'm not going to sit there and be like, okay, let's box. You know, I'm like, if that's how you see me, then so be it. I choose. It doesn't affect how I see myself, you know? So if you want to call me a woman, I mean, go for it. It might be weird in like a year or two when I have a beard and you're referring to me as a woman, you're going to, you're going to look crazy you know, but if that's religious or just personal preference, how you want to see me, then that's fine. It doesn't affect me at the end of the day.
0: That's fantastic. And that is what's important. Yeah. It's not as important about how other people view us. Yeah. And I always find it interesting that so many people get angry, you know, about this stuff that has nothing to do with them. This doesn't have yeah.
1: anything, to do with them,
0: you know, and that's always been the confusing part for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously I, I dealt with this with my son, um, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and again, for me, I didn't understand it, you yeah. know, I didn't really quite, you know, get the whole thing. Um, he was very adamant about it. He's had the entire surgery, the full surgery. Oh, wow. And, and so, um, that was very interesting to watch and to ultimately go through, um, but I love my son to death and, and, uh, you know, that, that is never going to change that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, like I
1: choose, I choose to look at myself as like a more broad spectrum. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm just like a human being at the end of the day. I mean, there are biological differences between men and female or male and female, you know, but I choose to just look at people as their core is like, I don't care if you're, you know, born a woman, turned into a man, vice versa. I don't care if you don't identify as either. I choose to look at people as just people, you know, morals, character, all of that stuff that matters. Cause I don't think genitalia at the end of the day should really cause people to want to box.
0: (laughs) Exactly. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. Like I I had, there are parts of me with hormones that I needed to change, you know, like my voice that was very, uncomfortable with it, my breasts I were unco- I was uncomfortable with. And I mean, I take hormones now. I don't know if I'm gonna forever take hormones, you know, because I don't know the long-term effects of it. And I don't know if I'm willing to take that risk. But until I get to a level where I'm comfortable with where I'm at and where I can live with myself every day, I will continue to take them, you know, and if some people choose to take them forever, that's you know their choice but I choose to, ju- I just wanted to change things about me that bothered me. And like you said, your son had everything. Like I, I had my breasts removed and that was enough. Like that relieves so much stress for me. And it was like, when I got them done, I was like, okay, I don't even need to take hormones, you know, <laughs> but there are still things that I want to change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was when my son decided to go that full step, that extra step. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> That was a little more confusing for me.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very intricate thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm too scared to do that. You know, more power to people who are, but I'm like, I, I don't want to mess with any of that, you know? Yeah. But respect to people who do. I bet it's hard for you. Like you said, like it's hard to understand it at the end of the day, like why people do what they do. But I guess it's like, why do people do drugs? You know, it's like, and I guess for anything you can ask, like, why did you do that? Or why do you want to do that? And I mean, I guess if you have the means to do it and it's going to make you happy at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm all for whatever makes people happy.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, you know, everybody does things for a reason and drugs are no different. You yeah. Well, people, people do drugs for a specific reason and it works in the beginning. Yeah. Eventually exactly. It stops working. Um mm-hmm. And that's what they call um, adaptation level theory, which says that, you know, anytime that you do something like a drug for an extended period of time, your body's going to adapt to it to where you will eventually no longer get pleasure from it. And, you know, I was a meth user, abuser, very serious abuser, and I did lots and lots of it. And I was always trying to find that first high, just like you had talked about with marijuana. We're always chasing that you know, trying to get it back and you're never going to find it. And yeah, I got to a place to where I wasn't even getting high anymore. The only thing it was doing for me was keeping me awake or, you know, not sick <laughs> function or do anything, you know? Yeah. And, um, and that's where, for those of us that have had to go down that path to that extent, we do realize that and we learn that adaptation level theory really does exist. And, you know, for, and I was, you know, you, I always, I I always wish sometimes, and I tell clients, this, I wish I could put my knowledge upon some of these, especially the young people that, Mm -hmm. you know, are, you know, get in treatment or they go in rehab because they got busted or they got caught or something. And they haven't gone down that full path yet that I always wish that I could somehow just pass that on to them so they could see it. (laughs) So they don't have to quite go that far. Um, because sadly there are a lot that don't survive. Yeah. And you know, you're a survivor, I'm a survivor. Um, you know, most, all the people that I have on, on my show and stuff, um, are really that they're classified as survivors. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the abuse can be in different areas. The trauma can be in different areas. The, the, um, you know, mental illness at times can be, but it all comes back to the same thing, you know. We're all survivors, we've beat this. We gotta stay strong. You gotta love yourself. Who cares what other people think?
1: Very freeing, I'm telling you, everybody should try it.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Easier said than done sometimes, though.
0: It is, it is, it's easy to say stuff. You know, there's a difference between knowledge and skills. You know, I can I can say things that I've learned. But unless you put it into practice, you're not going to gain the skills. And so the difference between knowledge and skills, like I can teach you knowledge, I can't teach you skills.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like when they put somebody in rehab, I heard it numerous times with my brother, like you have to make that choice to go yourself. You can't be forced into it. You know, if you're forced into doing something against your own will, then it's not going to work. It's once you accept the fact that, like, hey, I want this for myself that it starts to, you know, take off.
0: So when I want to ask, and I always ask everybody on this, is there anything that I haven't brought up or haven't said that you would like to mention or talk about? Or if you have any knowledge you want to give some people out there, I'd like to give you the floor for a second.
1: I mean, I would, I'm would. i a very big ad, advocate for therapy. So I, I think everybody should have a third party that they talk to, you know, whether it's I think there's a different level of communication between a stranger, you know, and somebody who's close to you. I think it's very important for people to reach out before they get to a place where they're so far down into depression or anxiety, where they want to use or they want to hurt themselves. You know, I, I think from my personal experience, if I would have sought therapy personally younger, it would have relieved a lot of the stress and a lot of the stupid, a lot of the stupid decisions that I made, you know? Like if, if I would have spent the time to understand and I guess more so process through therapy what was happening in my day-to-day life, it it would have helped tremendously. So I'm a very big advocate for therapy. I think everybody should have one or at least try it a little bit. Because I don't I don't believe in people being mentally ill. I mean, some people are, some people aren't. But if you think you're crazy, I can probably guarantee that you're not. <laughs> And there's a lot of people who are going through the same things that you are. If you, you know, find those resources and reach out, you're not alone. Is more so, I guess, what I'm trying to say. There's people out there who care, whether you think there are or not. And I think it's very important to not only realize that, but actually truly understand it.
0: Yeah, crazy. Uh, one of my favorite classes I, I in college I took was um, abnormal psychology. And, you know, what is abnormal? And, you know, abnormal is defined as, you know, you know, every culture that we live in or every culture out there, you know, has what is called what is classified as normal and what is abnormal. And but what but you are normal to you. I'm normal to me. And, you know, people have psychiatric illnesses, quote unquote, that we diagnose out of the Mm DSM-5. Whatever they have is normal to them. That's the normal state. And that's why I'm a very big advocate on removing labels because.
1: Oh, yeah. That's they, a good one. That is a good one.
0: Because labels, as I said, you know, when you label yourself, you limit yourself.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I could lie to you, right? And I could say, okay, I was dishonest, right? Um, or I could just continue calling myself a liar, you know, or somebody that steals, we define them as a thief. And so the more they say I'm a thief, then the more they're going to (laughs) steal.
1: Yeah, exactly. They try to fit. They try to play that part. Like you said, like if when people try to put you in a box, you're going to want to try to break out of it, regardless of if it's true or not. So I I think the more that people try to define somebody, the more it, like you said, it turns them into that person. Ultimately, it's like playing a part. It's like a facade, you know, like, oh, I got to live up to that expectation. Damn. Damn.
0: I want to thank you for coming on here and uh I really well, appreciate it you.
1: it's been great
0: yeah I appreciate your honesty and I hope to meet you sometime um you know yeah. and um, I want to thank everybody for tuning into another episode of Highwall clean and I will talk to you soon